Amen. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. Good to be with you. Put a smile on your face. Take your Bibles out. Turn to 1 Peter 4, if you would. 1 Peter 4 this morning. It's uh, good to be in the house of the Lord together, to worship together in singing, to worship together in giving, to worship together in prayer, and worship the Lord again in the reading of his word, and then and as we move out of here, applying that thing that we learn, those things we learn. So if you have little ones up through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. Love to have them down there with us, or if you want to keep them with you, feel free. Uh, you're welcome to do either one of those. We love kids. We have a lot of them, and we'd like them to be around, so just keep them with you if you'd like. Turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter 4. We are in a continued series, God's Plan for a Healthy Church. We uh, are going through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're in second, just getting started. Uh, part four, we really hear the comfort portion of the scriptures that have to do with the sweet from the bitter. Paul, in the middle of difficult times, showing what it means to live victoriously and to live inside the will of God and how he's revealed that will. It's a privilege, really, to return to this study with you, this first chapter of Second Corinthians. As we prepare for the study this week, we're going to be in 1 Peter 4. I'll tell you why in just a second. But um, we're going to spend our time there and another uh, couple of other places. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at a very important subject of suffering. If you've spoken to anyone at any point in time in a witnessing situation, it undoubtedly comes up. The topic will come up, especially for those who are not acquainted with the Lord, don't know anything about his word, but... Uh, as you present uh, sovereign God in charge of all things, who's made all things, that this topic will come up. And so these are very important uh, things that we're going to look at, doctrines that we'll look at, I think, that are very helpful, very uh, relevant. Also for you personally, as you go through difficult times in your own life, we get to see some very important things from Paul's life in the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of his affliction, in the midst of his suffering. So not someone then on the outside looking in saying, you should do this, but someone who is in the middle of it saying, this is what I do. It's a big departure from his first letter that we have recorded for us here, 1 Corinthians, where just kind of systematically went through the church and said, okay, these are the difficulties we're having, and so this is what we need to do to fix them and give him some instruction. Here he really, we get to see the heart of Paul as he really speaks to this church that he's begun to be reconciled with as the church has begun to come into submission to the teaching after some very hard times and put Paul through some very difficult things. We've seen a number of uh, very important principles here as they relate to these things. So we've seen an attitude as Paul is in the middle of suffering. We see this attitude that he has of the nature of God as it relates to difficult times. So understanding who God is, uh, something of his nature, that God is the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, that that is who he is. You can't convince Paul that that is not the case. It should certainly be that for us. We understand who God is. In his sovereignty, he allows these things, and in his sovereignty, he provides uh, comfort and mercy in the midst of these difficult times. We've seen seen the general experience then of Paul receiving God's comfort in the middle of his difficulties and his trials and his suffering. And we've seen Paul make some very important applications as he comes through those things uh, that we are not victims in the storms of life. Instead, we are stewards of the comfort that God supplies to us in order to give it to others. And then we saw Paul begin to illustrate those points by pointing out that every believer has already seen these things at work in their own experience. Uh, they bring uh, the sufferings that Christ has brought them through are ours in abundance. Every true believer endures the marks of the mission. So if you're a believer, in other words, there's solidarity in the suffering that Christ suffered will be the sufferings that you will need to go through and will be taken through because you are his. And so his sufferings are yours in abundance. We looked at that very 
uh, carefully in all, a number of supporting scriptures to help us understand that is the case for all of us who call themselves uh, call ourselves Christians. And the comfort then, uh, we saw Paul make some application here. He tells the, the church, listen, the, you've, you've suffered with the sufferings of Christ and you've been comforted by the comforts of Christ because they are yours in abundance. Every true believer receives the encouragement and strength needed uh, that more than counterbalance the difficulties that they have as a result of Christ. So Paul built on that understanding as we saw last week, and we looked at verses 6 and 7. And I'll just put them up here for you. You don't have to turn there because we'll be out of here in just a second. But Paul says, if we are afflicted, so he's going to help us understand this. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, Paul says, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also endure. So part of getting the sweet from the bitter, Paul says, uh, he's helped us understand this part of getting the sweet from the bitter is that there is this partnership in the church all of our sufferings all of our difficulties enable us here it is to minister to each other so we're going to bring comfort to someone else if the church is functioning here in the way that it's designed to function then you're not out there on your own so if you're having a hard time there's somebody here who's had a hard time similar to that and they can provide comfort for you along with the growth and the maturity and the humbling and the accomplishing some certain thing in your life that god is using suffering and difficulty to accomplish there is this ministry that's supposed to be done see it appears to be very encompassing whatever the difficulty so paul uses all and whatever and any those kinds of words that help us understand that there isn't any exclusion then here it appears to be whatever the difficulty from whatever the source there's this partnership and i told you last week as we ended my suffering and my difficulty are for me and for you and your suffering and your difficulty are for you and for me so there's this uh, wonderful ministry that is to go on that creates this dynamic in the church this energy in the church and and you're and that, that shouldn't surprise us should it? it shouldn't surprise us that the lord equips his church like that that you have suffering and it's for you to shape you to humble you to bring you into submission to more conformity to christ to bring some certain accomplish god to accomplish some certain thing in you and then he uses those things of course to do that and then he comforts you in the middle of it and then you turn around and can comfort someone else and you are able and equipped to do that and paul says that ministry in the church of comforting ellen makes more comforters reprints of the holy spirit we saw that over and over again uh, but also not just that but if we're comforted it is for your comfort paul says which is effective here it is in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer so in other words comforting one another energizes this wonderful fruit that god wants to produce in each one of us called patient endurance so in your comforting of each other, see, you are part of this process God uses to bring about perseverance and proven character and hope that we saw in Romans chapter 5. And those are pretty important qualities in the life of the believer. We see them over and over again. Um, proven character, perseverance, proven character, and hope. We said over and over, God wants to produce that in you. And so he uses all kinds of ways to do that, and he uses other believers who've been through difficult times to come alongside you when you're having difficult times and produce it in you. A great illustration, and of course the word illustrates the word, James 1, 2 through 4, this illustrates very well. Same words we see here as we see Peter, we're going to use in just a minute, we see Paul using here over and over again. James says this, consider it all joy. Paul says rejoice. So again, we just have this, in the midst of difficulty, rejoice. Or in the midst of difficulty, James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Parasmos, as we see this word over and over again, that's the general word for a test or for a proving time. If you will, uh, imagine an experiment like in Job's situation. It's to figure out what's there. 
So consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, uh, when you are going to find out what's there. James explains it just that way in the next verse, knowing that the testing, that's dokimion, that's, that's the purifying, that's the process of removing impurities. We've seen that a, a, for, a form of that word over and over again. That is the, uh, the purification process in action. So James says, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the purifying of your faith in these trials produces, here it is, endurance. That's our word, hupomone. It produces endurance. That's what God wants in each person. You help produce that when you comfort someone else in their difficulty as you've been comforted. And God wants that in you. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Again, we see that these things are the Holy Spirit's desire for us. There's no way to escape that. If you call on the name of Christ, he wants to produce in you those kinds of things. Perseverance, proven character, hope. And he's going to use all these different ways to produce that in you for your joy. The sanctifying work he does through the word produces these character traits. Very common emphasis throughout the epistles. Later, James says this, and James 1.12 illustrates it again very clearly. Blessed is the man who perseveres. There it is again. That's what the Lord wants from us in difficulty, right? So that's the other side. You've come through the difficult things. You've been encouraged by uh, other believers in the church who've been having a hard time. Blessed is the one who perseveres. The Lord wants us to have that, uh, squeeze that out in difficulty. That's the verb form, hupomeno, present, active, indicative. That is the reality of the believer. What the pressing pressure, the thlipsis, should press out of you is perseverance. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once again, as Parasmus, again, the, that testing, that let's find out what's there. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, dokimos, that's the dross has been removed now. So the process is done and the purification process is there, is, has been completed. Once he's been approved, that's an adjective, the process is complete. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Isn't that great? So not only do you receive these things that he wants to see in your life, and they begin to be produced, those very important character qualities of perseverance, proven character, and hope, there's a hope for a future reward. See? That's part of what God has promised to those who love him. This is the type of suffering and trial and difficulty ordained by the Lord to bring us to perfection. Now, as has been our habit in the time that we've ministered together, going verse by verse through uh, books gives us opportunity to deal with very difficult passages, so we can't avoid them. So if I'm skipping around and just giving you a, a topical message from you know, every single week, I can skip over the hard parts. It makes it easier for me, but it's not beneficial for you, so, and not beneficial for me either. So we're right there, we're in, this is the case in 2 Corinthians 1. So we have the difficult things of suffering, the hardships that we're going through, things we might not be taking joy in, we might not be rejoicing, we might not be considering all joy, and yet we're exhorted over and over to do it, and then given the reasons why we need to do it. But that also gives us the opportunity to use our current passage as a home base, if you will, and we do that a lot uh, to allow us to further enrich our understanding of these doctrines. And, and what we've done, we've done that already in this series, we're going to do it again right now. So turn to 1 Peter 4, 12. And we're going to look uh, to Peter who really comments on this process of suffering and trials and afflictions and gives us a broader understanding of them as he adds some additional dynamics. So look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and your copy of God's Word. We're going to read the uh, first couple verses right now. Here he says, Beloved, and that's you. I use that word of you all the time because the Lord says that's who you are. You're beloved. And so, beloved, do not be surprised. So speaking to believers, so don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Parasmo, same word we saw earlier, a test, a proving time, an experiment to see what's there. 
Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. So again, uh, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because we've been in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he's been very, Paul's been very clear, this is indeed the case. We just read James chapter 1, and we understand that, again, is indeed the case, and we, we count it all joy, so we're not surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised, but I want to pause here right for a moment and look at these two words, fiery ordeal. Now, that's just one word in the Greek. It's the noun, it's, it's the word, uh, it's the noun for fire. So, um, the word ordeal has been added there for clarification in the English. Because if you read it uh, like it was in the Greek without the ad adding uh, ordeal, you would just read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire among you. And we would probably not understand what that meant. That means, what, did your house catch on fire? Is the, house, is the town on fire? What's on fire? And so that's not the idea there. So it's been clarified because the word's used in the Greek a different way here. And so that ordeal has been added to clarify and, and, uh, in the English, which makes the word fire look like an adjective, but it isn't. And this is the word for fire, one Paul has mentioned before, and we've studied before from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. So I want to draw your memory back there. Paul says this, Paul speaking of the Bema Seat judgment, and he says, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed by, or with, what's the word? Fire. This is the same, this is the same word and the same understanding. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, we, we broke that uh, passage down at length when we went through this uh, this book, and so we're not going to go into that teaching again because we're going to see it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll reacquaint ourselves with that doctrine of the Bema Seat Judgment. Just the, the simple matter of uh, on that foundation of Christ, every believer uh, has that foundation, and what has happened in their life since that time is considered a spiritual building. And there's a number of different uh, uh, materials that you can use throughout the course of your life to build on that building. Some is wood, hay, and stubble, and others is gold, silver, and costly stone. And the gold, silver, and costly stone is built in such a way that it isn't conformed to what the Word of God says by your attitude and the diligence with which you bring to the ministry that you do. And the things that you do with your life and the wood, hay, and stubble are things that you bring from the flesh into the spiritual dynamic of your life and those things will get burned away. And so it's not a judgment for hell. You are secure and saved forever. It's a judgment for works. It has to do with how you lived your life. Guess what? An accountant is coming. He's going to add up all the numbers and see how you did. Okay? He's been very clear about it. The Lord said over and over again in the Word that this is going to happen. And so it shouldn't surprise us as believers that we don't just get to do whatever we want with no accountability at any time in the future. There will be accountability. And that shouldn't scare us, but it should be, uh, it should be an accountability and a motivation to say, okay, this, uh, uh, what am I building with? And make sure that you are aligning with what the Scriptures have to say about that. And we'll go back through that again. But uh, the point I want to make here is this. Paul uses the word fire three times in this passage. And it clearly indicates that a proving time is coming in the future that will call to question everything each believer has done and thought and all the motives behind all of that since salvation. There's a fire coming. It's going to determine what was gold, silver, and costly stone, which will last the fire, and what was wood, hay, and stubble, which will not. So Peter uses it here, and it really indicates a, 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 a few very important principles. And we'll get to the first one here. Believers shouldn't be surprised. You can find this in your notes if you're a note taker, back of your bulletin. Believers shouldn't be surprised that a Bema seat type judgment comes along in their lives before the final one comes because they come for the same reason. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised. Why? Because you're going to have one at the end of your life, but they're going to come along throughout the course of your life, and they're just a matter of determining what's good and what isn't. 
In other words, the Lord in his graciousness and in his love wants us to know the truth about our faith and he is desirous to bring us to maturity as we've seen. And so he uses fiery ordeal, Peter says, to test us, to see what's there. And so the test can accomplish the revealing of who we really are and the perfecting into who God wants us to be. So that shouldn't surprise us. And then Peter determines, verse 13, he says this. Look at your copy of God's Word. And you can make notes right there in the margin that can help you remember uh, what you're talking about today. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let's pause right there. Now, we know from our passage in 2 Corinthians 1.4 that God is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he comforts us and we are to comfort others in any affliction, in any difficulty, in any pressing pressure, we know we'll be comforted. And here, in verses 13 and 14, Peter is speaking of the sufferings of Christ. And he gives us two more principles. Okay, so, number two, uh, this next principle here, number two, the degree that you suffer for Christ will be, you will be rewarded in eternity. So, just keep rejoicing. Because, Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal, this testing that's going to come, uh, this trial of the things that you've done, because... Uh, uh, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And then he says, um, uh, know this, the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, the degree that you suffer for Christ, you'll be rewarded in eternity. And we just saw in James, part of our eternal reward seems to be connected to the degree of your suffering here. Just like we saw that you're comforted abundantly through Christ to more, to more than take care of your sorrows, so your eternal reward is connected to the degree of your suffering, as is your comfort. So just rejoice in that. So here's the deal. You, you go through difficult times, and there's a test there, and it kind of reveals what's there, and to the degree that those are sufferings for Christ's sake, that fiery ordeal comes as a result of Christ, to the degree that you suffer for Christ, you're going to be rewarded in eternity. And that shouldn't surprise us either, right? Because the Lord is a good parent, isn't he? And as good parents, we reward good behavior with our children, and we punish bad behavior, we chasten it, and the Lord is just like, he is the model for that for us, see? He says, listen, to the extent that this fiery ordeal among you uh, comes upon you for your testing, to the extent that, that includes what you've done for Christ, as you suffer for it, you're going to be rewarded in eternity. And then he goes on and says this in verse 14, he says, when you're slandered or insulted for Christ in your life now, you're blessed because that means the Holy Spirit's at work in you. So there's a future reward connected to the extent that you suffer for Christ's sake, and there's a present indication that, yes, you are right where you need to be. So when this fiery thing comes and it starts testing out what you've done and it kind of burns away the things that aren't any good and kind of leaves the stuff that is, and you realize that some of this came as a result of Christ, you're going to be rewarded in eternity. And realize that's a future reward, but right now, as, you sh as, you, as you're slandered or insulted for Christ, what does he say? He says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It just means that, you know, the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Not only will you be rewarded for what you suffer for Christ in the future, but being insulted and slandered and ridiculed now is just evidence that the Holy Spirit's at work in you, comforting, strengthening, and encouraging. And so, beloved, if you find yourself right in the middle of because of your witness for Christ and whatever you're doing, and you find yourself being slandered and, and you find yourself being reviled for the name of Christ, uh, realize that the sufferings you're going through right now, you're going to be rewarded for in proportion in the future. And that should encourage you right now that the Holy Spirit's at work in you. If somebody's picking on you because you're a believer, and they've set you aside, they've reviled you, they've slandered you, you know, realize you know, that's encouraging. So Peter says, don't be surprised as some strange thing were happening to you. 
this fire ordeal. So, we've seen that believers can be comforted by the Lord in any affliction, and we're to comfort each other in any affliction, and there's a reward for the suffering for Christ's sake, and there's encouragement for, from the Holy Spirit while you're being slandered and while you're being insulted, and that's an indication of the blessing of the Lord. Peter knows this firsthand because the Lord has some refining to do with Peter, as he does with all of us. And maybe he is the source of the affliction or trial, or maybe it's people, or maybe it's health, or maybe it's money or difficulties all through the Lord's hand, whatever he's using to refine you in this way, whatever it is, the Lord through difficulty wants us to look at our lives as tools that God has prepared for his use, move away from a victim mentality of all these things are against me mentality, and instead embracing the fact that God in his sovereignty has allowed us to go through very difficult times or times of suffering so that we can be used by him not in our own strength, trying to overcome what we perceive as our victimization, but instead strengthened by God, the God of all comfort, so that we can comfort others, and we seek not only the comfort, the comfort God provides for ourselves, but Paul says we seek to be broken and to comfort with the strength that we've received from him. The Lord desires to do some certain thing, to accomplish some certain thing in the lives of those who are his. Maybe it's to awaken us to the sweetness of scripture. Maybe it's to, to drive us to prayer or deepen the prayer lives of the people around us. Maybe it is to lead us to spiritual introspection. Maybe it's to humble us, as we saw an example with Peter and Luke. Maybe it's to develop the qualities of patience and endurance and maturity. Maybe it's to heighten our desire for his kingdom to come. That's that hope of the future. Right? That this is not all, and the difficulties we're having here, whether it's physical or, or whatever it is, this is not it, and there's a hope for the future where we'll be done and we'll be rewarded for that. Maybe it's to heighten our desire for that kingdom. Maybe it's to provide an opportunity to witness to lost family members the Lord takes you through the hard times. Maybe it's to file off a rough edge or two. Maybe it's to cultivate thankfulness or any number of other things, see. So the Lord's at work. But there's this other side to suffering and difficulty, and Peter differentiates this for us. And this is what I told you at the end of last sermon. I want to make sure that we covered this before we moved on into Peter or into Paul actually sharing the sufferings he went through so he can be comforted by them and provide comfort. And this is found in 1 Peter 4.15. Here it is. And this can certainly entail and take in some of the suffering that believers go through. Because Peter's speaking to believers. Because he said, beloved, at the beginning. He's talking to the church. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. That's just works of the flesh, isn't it? So number four, principle number four, suffering in the life of a believer can come as a result of sinfulness. And Peter says, don't do that. Okay, don't, don't, cre don't create the opportunity where this has to be the case. That's the idea. So it's possible that believers could suffer for these sins. And, and you might think, is that possible? For a believer to suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler? Of course it is. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have had to mention it. Right? I mean, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just Peter saying, listen, this can happen. And, and we've said this before, but I think it's important to mark it again. Every sin that can mark the life of a non-believer can mark the life of a believer. Why? Because you still have the same appetites in the flesh that you had before. But now you have the Holy Spirit there who can guide and, and bring you under conviction, all those things as it works through the, whole, the, the word of God, bringing you into sanctification, right? But as you come to faith, you're still the person, the man you were before you were saved, the moment before. But now the Holy Spirit indwells in you. Your old self has died and your new self has risen. And so there's, there's this, there's this uh, antagonism between the, what the flesh wants and what the inner man now, the new inner man wants. 
So it's possible that these sins could mark the life of a, a believer just like they mark the life of a non-believer. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't say, don't find yourself in a position where the Lord has to chasten you, where he has to make you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or troublesome meddler. Don't do that. Now, where will the suffering, where will the suffering originate? Well, we said the Lord might bring it to you. Certainly, that's the case. It could also be from the hands of human justice. It could be the wages of sin or the consequences of actions and the shame that can come from disobedience. Whether it's uh, bodily trouble and, and disease, it could be any number of things and the shame that comes from all of that. It could certainly be from the hand of the Lord. We know that for sure. And it's important to point out that blessing and future reward are not mentioned as benefits of this type of suffering. Okay, suffering for Christ's sake, suffering as the Lord conforms you to his image, those things are rewarded. And there's blessing associated with them and, and a, an encouragement right now that that the Holy Spirit's at work in you. We don't see any of those benefits here. We know the Lord's still comforting. We know that God's Father of mercy, right? He looks at us with compassion. We understand that that's his perception of us and that's how he wants to deal with us. But we don't see any blessing coming along and no future reward coming along for suffering as a non-believer would suffer. A murderer, thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler, on and on. And that's illustrated very consistently in the other parts of Scripture. And so I want to take you just to a few parts here because we have some time, and I think this will be enriching for you. You might find uh, copying some of these things down in the margin of your Bible helps you to deal with these things as you deal with other believers and with non-believers as they deal with suffering. Here's one, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. So as, as the writer is giving us some exhortation, he's reminding us of a few things that are traits of the Lord, and he says, have you, have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure, and God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Let's pause right there. So the Lord proves that we are his because he's not content to let us stay in our current state. That kind of sums up uh, what discipline looks like. That's how you deal with your children. You, you prove that they, you love them by you're not content to let them stay in a sinful state and let them stay in a place where they're in disobedience to you. And so you corporately punish them and you, and you do the lecture thing and everything I talked about from Ephesians uh, chapter 6. And so you bring them into correction. And God's correction produces what is intended to produce, which is a change of behavior. And verse 7 says it produces endurance. See, the same word we've seen over and over again. For it's for discipline that you endure. Again, that's what the Lord wants to have as part of our character. And so this discipline is common among the redeemed, and it indicates that those who are disciplined belong to him. But again, we don't see blessing. We don't see reward. We see suffering. We see hardship and discipline as the way of correction. And we certainly know that the Lord is the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, and we know he comforts us in any affliction. And that any is great right there. Any affliction, even ones of our own doing, see, and I think we can all relate to that at some point. We, we've messed up and created the affliction that's on us or the suffering or difficulty. And the Lord's right there still. He's promised to always be with us, always stay with us, to comfort us and be the father of all mercies. So he comforts us in any affliction so we can comfort others so we're never without a comforter. Now, not long ago, we examined this passage, so you'll remember it. Um, and for some reason, let's go back here. Look to 1 Corinthians 11:28, will you? Somehow I uh, messed that up. And we'll get to John 5, 16 in just a minute. 
So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. this is a great passage. Here, are some, uh, here some in the church were in sin concerning their attitude and actions in, in the love feast and the Lord's table. And Paul corrects the sinfulness, and then he, he warns the church, and he says this. And you know this because I've, I read this passage to you often. It says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So we come to the table, I warn you of this. I tell you the same passage, uh, coming in an unworthy manner. We're speaking of fellowship issues, coming... Uh, uh, to the table with unforgiveness in your heart, with, with uh, animosity towards someone, all those kinds of things are ways that we share in the sins of those who crucified the Lord. Um, verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and so doing he's to eat the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for he who eats it and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Now we're getting into the, in, into the thick of what we're talking about, okay? You're eating and drinking judgment to yourself, obviously causing suffering, causing difficulty, causing hardship. Okay, um, typically judgment does those, those things. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, but a number, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Again, speaking to believers, just like Peter was, okay? Don't suffer as a murderer, as a, as a thief, and all those kind of things. Again, we notice this. Paul is addressing believers here. And here, the suffering for sinfulness could include weakness, sickness, and death. And again, these constant things remain. God's correction produces what it is intended to produce, which is a change of behavior that comes from a proper evaluation of our actions and our motives. And this suffering is the motivation, and it could be common among the redeemed. And again, it indicates that those who are disciplined belong to him. Okay, so hardship's coming. It's because there's sin here. We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about hardship coming as the Lord's perfecting and, and doing some certain work or coming as a result of our witness for Christ. We're talking about judgment's coming because you're disobeying, see? And hardship is going to come and suffering, see? Weakness, sickness, death. And again, what we don't see again, we don't see blessing, we don't see reward connected to that. What we do see is suffering and hardship and discipline as the way of correction. We certainly know that the Lord is the Father of mercy, God of all comfort. We know he comforts us in any affliction, that we can, and we can comfort others, and this is included. He's going to be right there comforting. So we're never without a comforter, but this suffering is without a doubt suffering for wickedness. See. Now again, we move further back, 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians 5, and it doesn't appear that I have that one up there either, I don't think. Let's see. I'm completely messing this up. Oh, there we go, 1 Corinthians 5. Look there, and you can just look here with me. You can turn back to 1 Peter 4 if you want. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, here Paul's addressing an unrepentant, immoral person, believer uh, in the fellowship there in Corinth. Look at verse 4. It says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you, have, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day, uh, in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, let's pause right there. It's a passage we looked at pretty, pretty thoroughly when we went through there. And again, suffering for sinfulness includes the destruction of the flesh. So here you have a believer in the fellowship. He's in, a, he's in an immoral relationship with someone uh, who's not his wife. The, the, the church has not put him out. 
the church has just become very comfortable with, with that, with whatever deviant behavior it is, just like a lot of modern churches today, they just kind of, they think the church is supposed to be accepting of everything and everyone and every manner of lifestyle and every expression of, of sexuality and all that kind of stuff. We don't see any of that in the scriptures. We see a purity. We see some relationships described for us in the scripture very strictly. And those things are the way God's blessing is. And people come in and perhaps they're in an immoral relationship, but they don't want to be and They're moving away from that. That's the thing the Lord wants, right? He wants he wants uh, repentance, he wants turning, all that kind of stuff, see? And so here's suffering for sinfulness. It includes the destruction of the flesh. And so again, perhaps weakness, sickness, continuing in unrepentant state, death. This is church discipline. This is the church actually doing what Jesus instructed his disciples to do in Matthew 18, 15. And we see that kind of uh, as an example for us. And Satan and his demons are handed the job of inflicting bodily suffering until if and when repentance occurs or death is the result. And again, this suffering is the motivation to repent. It indicates that those who are disciplined belong to him. Again, right at the end, you see that. So, so, so uh, uh, Paul says this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. If he's a true believer, the Lord may just say, hey, it's time to come home. Uh, you've, you've, disciplined, you've disobeyed long enough. You're not going to repent. I'm just going to bring you home. Uh, I'm turning you over to Satan and his demons to do that job for me, and you're going to come and be with me. See, And so again, it just indicates that the person indeed perhaps was the Lord's after all. And, and uh, we don't see, again, any blessing and reward connected to it for the suffering that's going on for sinfulness in the church. Uh, we see suffering and hardship and discipline as the way of correction, suffering for wickedness sake. And Peter says, don't suffer for those things. See, Don't find yourself in a position where you have to suffer for those things. We're going to see this later in our study, but the suffering inflicted by the Lord through Satan's realm was sufficient to produce repentance. So later on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, verse 5, we see that that comforting came from, uh, Paul says, comfort this person. He has repented. Bring him back in so he's not overly sorrowful. And so we see that the process was effective without the death of the individual. That whatever suffering in the body he endured created this, this uh, repentance and, and a sorrow for sin. And, and Paul says, encourage him. Bring him back in. Uh, the Lord, uh, that's the Lord's desire in all suffering and all discipline. And of course, with that comforting and encouraging, producing the fruit of patient endurance and proven character and hope, as we saw last week, those character traits can still be produced. And then suffering as an evildoer is dealt with in First uh, John chapter 5, verse 16. Look at First John chapter 5, verse 16, if you would. This is a really interesting passage. We looked at this uh, last uh, Sunday night. And it's a, it's a marvelous place where we get some information that perhaps you're not used to hearing, and maybe you've never heard a sermon on this. John did very well with it uh, last Sunday night, but I want you to see it too, because it really has a lot to do with what we're talking about. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. I'm sorry, you have to flip around. Somehow my slides have become uh, disjointed. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, see where we are, he shall... He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, verse 17, and there is a sin not leading to death. And you're like, whoa, what? Well, that's what most people do when they read that. There's, what, there's a sin leading to death? I mean, isn't God just this big cosmic grandpa in the sky, and he's like, whatever, you know, and, oh, yeah, you broke my favorite lamp. Don't worry about it. Come on over. You're up on my knee. You know, God is gracious, and he is merciful and he does look at us with those eyes and he is full of love and compassion he gave his own son to be the satisfaction for us and yes god does have those character traits but god has also given his those who follow him a, a way to live and he said listen I, i'll chasten you because i love you and you're my sons and i'll bring you into uh, this direction whether you like it or not or maybe i'll just bring you to be with me 
This is one of those, maybe I'll just bring you to be with me kind of things. According to John, there are sins that will produce death to believers. And there are many things that are unclear about that passage, but a few things I think we can say that we know for sure. We know that John is talking about a believer participating in wickedness. We know that for sure. We know from the passage uh, that we have studied that the Lord is always about producing some good thing in us. So we know that for sure. We know that he disciplines us in the form of difficulty, pressing pressure, and suffering to correct behavior that isn't confessed and repented of. We've seen that over and over again, especially today. We know that even in the middle of suffering, that he's compassionate, merciful, and he's always a comforter. And we know that some sins can result in suffering that leads to death, like lying to the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Ananias and Sapphira. That didn't take very long for the Lord to convince the church that it's best not to come in and tell a blatant lie about what you did before the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a good thing he doesn't keep doing this because probably all of us would have found ourselves dead on the floor at some point, right? Because we're flesh and sometimes the indication to lie is there and we do it. But the Lord made very clear that he wasn't just, you know, hey, do whatever you want in the early church. He set some parameters early on and said, listen, this could be the result. So Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit. What did he do? He immediately took them to be with him. Taking the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. We just saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Right? Some are weak, some are sick, and some sleep. So obviously, there's a sin that can come to the point where the Lord just says, okay, no more on the earth, you're going to be with me. Unrepentant immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn him over for the destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved. So it may result in the death of the individual in unrepentant sin. So that's not surprising. So there are, those are three places where we know for sure that that could be a sin leading to death because it did lead to death in the scriptures. But it isn't clear that John would be referring to these particular things. He may not be thinking of them at all, although they, they could be in his mind, and the church would certainly know about all of them. It is perhaps best to see the passage as a fellow believer's watch care over each other, not determining that the sin in another's life or is or is not a sin leading to death, so you're not determining that, okay? The Lord's the one who knows that. But instead, seeing the suffering and seeing the difficulty that's obviously drawn the attention of fellow believers going on in this person's life, they're having a really hard time, and realizing that this unconfessed, unrepentant sin could be the final one, catch this, inside the tolerance of God where God in his sovereignty has determined to bring the believer home. That's the best way to look at that, okay? Not necessarily it's those three things, Acts 5, 3, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 5, necessarily, although the church knows about them and they resulted in death and could result in death because the scripture says they could. Not necessarily that, in determining that must be one of the three, and so, wow, you're on your way, this is a sin, uh, not le this is a sin leading to death, but instead, it's there where, where you understand that in God's love for the believer, and in his chastening, he may just decide, that's it. Okay, that's, that's inside my tolerance. I've got to the point where I'm not going to let you sully the church or sully my name or sully your testimony anymore, and I'm just going to bring you home. See? And that's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? It's a hard thing to say. Except how could it mean anything besides that? See? And we're just being very general. We could be much more specific about it, but I think we could know a few things about that passage, and those things are, are difficult enough. God is going to preserve the purity of his church and, and, and the end uh, of the earthly life of a continuing disciplining believer may be how he does that, see? And so in 1 John, we see that encouragement. Listen, pray for these folks. And, and there doesn't appear to be many viable explanations as we understand the other passages we looked at where suffering leading to death is used as a warning and using it as a motivation. 
So prayer is one of the ways we're to support one another. And if we know there's a sin issue there, there are other things we are to do, of course. We just saw uh, about discipline and all those kinds of things and, and one person coming to another and saying, hey, don't do this anymore. And then more than one person coming and, and telling the church and all that. We know that there's stuff that we have to do. And we know that God has the right to deal with sinfulness. And we've said this over and over again and we need to get this in our mind and we understand God's nature this way. We know that God has the right to deal with sinfulness any way he chooses to do it. And John says, if the Lord has determined to bring his erring child home, then no intercessory prayer will change that determination. That's the point of the passage. That at some point, the Lord's just said, okay, I'm bringing him home. And no intercessory prayer on your part is going to make any difference there. And then John says, all unrighteousness is sin. Don't forget, okay, it's not just this one leading to death. That's the worst one. All unrighteousness is sin, and there's sin not leading to death. And John commands other believers to lift up in prayer all these brothers in the faith, and the Lord will grant life to those suffering for sin. And the idea is to be having watch care over one another. So a difficult passage, but one again that you know, shows us that discipline from the Lord and suffering for wickedness is the motivation to repent, and it indicates that those who are disciplined belong to the Lord. But again, we don't, we don't see blessing connected to that. We don't see reward connected to that. We see suffering and hardship and discipline as the way of correction, suffering for wickedness as an evildoer. And Peter says, don't do that. Don't put yourself in a position where you have to suffer as an evildoer. And I know you can see this, and we could spend an additional amount of time going back into the Old Testament. But, you know, there's illustrations of the Lord bringing suffering and affliction to motivate obedience. Is there any illustration better than Israel? I mean, if you read through the Old Testament, you can't come away without understanding that, right? I mean, I'm reading in Jeremiah right now, my, my personal reading. Oh, my word, right? I mean, just over and over. And I was reminded of this many, many times this week as I was working my way through. You know, Jeremiah, what a tough job he had. Hey, you know, I'm going to make you like an iron bar, like a, like a brass wall. Just go and tell them what I want you to tell them. And then they're always trying to kill him. They want to throw him somewhere and you persecute him, all that kind of stuff. He's just doing what the Lord wanted him to do. And they don't want to hear, see? Very tough job. Bringing the word of God to people and watch them disregard it, that's tough. Praying for their deliverance from death as a result of sin, exactly what we saw John telling believers to do, praying for their recovery, praying for their deliverance, praying that they won't die, and, and the Lord's answering Jeremiah, Jeremiah 11. Please tell me I've got this. Jeremiah 14.10, here we go. So, thus saith the Lord to his people. Catch this, it's just an example of what I was reading this week. Two, two examples, because we have, we have a few minutes. Thus saith the Lord to his people, even so they have loved to wander, they have not kept their feet in check, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sin into an account. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? The Lord hasn't changed his behavior towards sin, has he? Because he said, listen, if you take the, if you take the communion in such a way and, you, you're, and you're bringing into, you're, you're identifying with the sins that crucified the Lord, then you shouldn't expect anything except weakness, sickness, and perhaps death. If you're in open sinfulness inside the, in, in immorality in the church and you won't repent even though people are coming to you, listen, you may be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the soul may be saved. You may get to the point where 1 John 5 says where you have got to the point where inside God's tolerance, he's just saying, look, this erring believer is not going to turn and now I'm going to bring him and be home with me. So God says this in, in Jeremiah, he says, listen, their feet are always wandering and now I'm going to call their iniquity and their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. It sounds just like 1 John 5, doesn't it? Listen, if I've determined their death, you don't have to pray for them because no intercessory prayer is going to make any difference because I'm bringing them to be with me. 
See? I've determined, I've determined to bring them back with chastening, and it's just heart-wrenching. You know, Jeremiah 14, 17, he says this, You will say this word to them, Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow with a sorely inflicted wound. Who's doing that? The Lord's bringing that on them. And Jeremiah says, I'm going to cry with unrelenting tears. Uh, my face is, I'm going to sob because I have to, the Lord has to do what he's going to do. If I go out to the country, behold, those slain with a sword, or if I enter the city, behold, diseases of famine, for both prophet and priest have gone roving about in the land, and they do not know. Verse 19, have you completely rejected Judah, or have you loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came, and for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We know our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. This is Jeremiah, see? He understands. We have, we have, we have, identifying with all of that stuff, see? We know our iniquity. We know we have sinned against you. Do not despise us for your own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. So he appeals to God's own glory. And see, Beloved, I've said this to you before. You know, sometimes when you're suffering for wickedness' sake, it doesn't reflect on the Lord very well. I mean, if you just want to think about outside the box. I mean, think about people that you know are always living in disobedience that seem to always be under persecution and, and correction from the Lord. And then people look at their lives and go, you're a believer? Man, that is, that's not super attractive to me. You know, your life is a mess. This is exactly what Jeremiah is saying, isn't it? I mean... Lord, remember your throne. People are looking on. They see what you're doing to your own people. Yeah. It doesn't reflect too nicely on the Lord when he has to chasten his own people called by his name. And then people look at those folks and they think, wow, that's Christianity. I'm not really interested in that. Your life is not blessed. They don't understand the whole deeper thing going on. They don't understand the Lord's chasing you because he loves you. They don't understand that he's bringing you into this submission to him and that he's producing some certain thing. They just see all the difficulty you're going through. Right? Same thing here. Do not despise us for your own name's sake. Don't disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain or who, who can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Therefore, we hope in you, for you are the one who's done all these things. This is Jeremiah. He, you know, he's suffering through it, all the difficulty, just like his, his uh, countrymen are. And he understands it, doesn't he? There's no idol that can give rain. You're the only one who can open the heavens. See, you know, you're the one who's done all these things. We know you. We know who you are. See? Then the Lord said to me, Then the Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Not only am I not going to hear your prayer for them, even if Moses and Samuel were praying along with you, I've determined to bring, I've determined to bring correction on my people. I have determined, I have come to the end of the tolerance with which I will tolerate their sin, and now I'm going to bring them into Correction. Not only will I not deliver them from their discipline by your prayers, even if Moses and Samuel were here, I wouldn't listen to their prayers either. So a difficult passage again, but one that again shows us that discipline from the Lord and suffering for wickedness is the motivation to repent. See, it indicates that those who are disciplined belong to him. But again, we don't see blessing 
We don't see reward as if you're suffering for Christ's sake, right? If you're being ridiculed for Christ's sake, we don't see the reward and, and the blessing that come from that. We just see suffering and hardship and discipline as the way of correction, suffering for wickedness as an evildoer. And Peter says, don't suffer for wickedness as an evildoer. You know, early in their history, in the Promised Land, the entire book of Judges is an illustration of those principles, isn't it? So they went into sin, and the Lord brought, he brought chastening on them from other nations around them and all the difficulty, and then they repented and called out to the Lord, and so he sent them a deliverer, and then you're just a little bit longer, and then they're back where they were before, and they call out and back and forth and back and forth, and finally you get to Jeremiah, just like, that's it. I'm calling them into account. I love them, but I'm not going to let my name be sullied constantly, and so I'm calling this into account. Just a few more comments, we'll close for today. It really leads us to principle five, as it has to do with suffering for wickedness, and here it is. The cause of suffering and affliction, I want you to keep this in mind, is not always apparent. Now, we, we've gone through a number of passages where we would have knowledge, okay? So we have some knowledge about how the Lord works, and I think that's important. However, we don't have all knowledge, do we? So... We don't always know exactly what's going on in the life of another believer. So I want to call us into caution there. As we look at these passages, we don't always know um, all of that. We've seen, we know that suffering and affliction are not always a result of wickedness. You know, Job certainly is, is uh, an indication of that. But, you know, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, this is an important passage to help us understand this and keep it in balance. So as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is Jesus, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. So an automatic connection one to one. So he's blind, he must have sinned, or his parents must have sinned. And so this is chastening from the Lord. And so Jesus corrects that errant thinking. And what does he say? Jesus answered, it was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So not as a result of sin, although a very hard suffering, right? Difficult times. I mean, you know, blindness in first century really relegated you to a beggar. And so a very difficult life, and disciples are walking by, just like the Pharisees, they would say, well, you know, you were born in sin, and you're a sinner, and your parents are a sinner, so you, this has happened to you. So it's not connected like that, okay? It's the cause of suffering and affliction are not always apparent to us. We understand how the Lord works, and it's important to keep that in mind, but um, the assumption from his disciples, he must have sinned. Was it true? No. We do know, however, that in the midst of the works of God being on display, that God was accomplishing other things in the life of this dear man, Right? We for sure know that, even though it wasn't because of sin that he was blind, the Lord was accomplishing, he was doing some work in him, wasn't he? And he was comforting him and producing a comforter. We know those things for sure. God was producing patient endurance and proving character and hope. That for sure is going to be the, the case in whatever the suffering may be. And again, if you're suffering for Christ's sake, right, reward, future reward, and also, you know, the blessing now of God's Holy Spirit on your life, you're being ridiculed, Okay. Then um, number six, principle number six, let's look at that one. Um, look at Luke, uh, well, I'll just put it up there for you. Um, Luke chapter 13, verse one. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If there's a passage that can relate to present headlines, I think these are as good as any of them. You know, the Lord says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you remember that? Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, I have no pleasure in the death 
of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his way and live. So don't think somehow the Lord's up there and that he's, you know, killing the wicked people and somehow taking great pleasure in it. What does God want? He wants wicked people to turn. Now is the time of salvation, right? And God's patience is salvation towards you. So the Lord has this desire for all men to come. You know, thinking because some people are so excessively wicked, the Lord has brought great suffering on them. And that's, that's the, you know, you know great catas uh, catastrophe and suffering doesn't always indicate greater sin or culpability. Okay, so if you think about all the things that are going on around us, think about Luke 13 and think about verses 1 through 5 that, you know, so here are some Galileans and they are participating in sacrifice and worshiping the Lord. So they're in the middle of a worship service and what happens? So some of Pilate's soldiers come in and kill them. That's terrible. Okay, so ban all swords and there'll never be another killing. No, Jesus doesn't talk about that at all. And so people are, people are asking, and they're like, you know, hold on. These Jews are, are participating in, in uh, you know, morning sacrifice. They're doing what they're supposed to do, at least, you know, going through the motions. And Pilate sends some soldiers to kill them. And, you know, they must have been really bad. That's the idea. Because the Lord determined to kill him, right? That's what everybody's thinking. Jesus said, nope. Then he pulls another story from the headlines in, uh, in verse 4. He says, or do you suppose uh, that those who... Uh, those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, big catastrophe, right? Um, you know, a tower fell on a bunch of people. They must have been big sinners if they happened to be there at the time the tower fell, right? The Lord's just taking it out on them. He just said no, not bigger than any other man who lives in Jerusalem. And it's really hard to determine those things, see? So, you know, great catastrophe and suffering doesn't always indicate greater sin or culpability. It's not always sinfulness for which there's uh, hardship coming, okay? It's, it's hard for us to know those things. But we do know some things. We're confident in the nature of God, aren't we? And we know that he's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We know that, right? And we know that he comforts us right at the point of suffering. And we know that he desires for us not to be victims, but to be comforters. And we know that we work together with God as we comfort to produce the fruit of endurance, proven character, and hope. We know those things. We don't know, we don't know perhaps what the reason for suffering is. We don't know why there's a huge catastrophe. We don't know why uh, there's an earthquake somewhere in the South Pacific and it kills 200,000 people. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's what we can come away with, can't we? Unless you repent, also you shall all likewise perish. Right? It is the future end of everyone who lives. Death, right? Physical death. It's dependent, but what you do in between that time is very dependent on where you're going to spend eternity. Jesus is very, very, very interested in us knowing those things, see? And so to that, Peter says, you know, don't suffer as an evildoer. There's no future glory, no pleasant blessing suffering for an evil, as an evildoer. There's just a lot of shame. Just remember, if God has to chasten you, it's because he loves you, and he's affirming that you are his, and he wants to perfect you to holiness. Instead, you know, back 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, we'll close with this. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. So don't suffer as a non-believer, but don't be surprised at a fire ordeal that's coming on you, as if some surprising thing is happening. To the, to the extent that you suffer for Christ's sake, you'll be rewarded. And to the extent you're ridiculed for Christ's sake, you have this blessing on you right now, the Holy Spirit at work, and people will know that that's the case, and you'll be confident that that's the case. So if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. So there's no shame in suffering for Christ's sake. Only glory, only comfort, only reward. But it's to glorify God in this name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Again, a hard passage to hear. What, what, did, he, what did he just say? 
It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. The Lord wants to perfect us to holiness, doesn't he? He wants to do some certain thing in our lives, and he uses his word to do it, and he sometimes uses pressing pressure to produce endurance and proven character and hope. And then Peter wants the church to think through all of this, and if it begins with us first, he says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Terror, shame, death, hell. And if it's with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the, of the godless man and sinners? And we know the answers to those things, don't we? Right? Don't we? So Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come among you, as if some, some thing was happening that you didn't expect. The Lord's putting you through these difficult things to produce in you these character traits he wants from you. Don't suffer as a, don't suffer as a wicked person. Suffer for Christ's sake. And for the redeemed, our hope is reiterated. Verse 19, therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. Don't suffer as a non-believer. Don't suffer as a wicked person. If you're going to suffer, suffer for Christ's sake. If you're going through difficulty, understand that the Lord is there to comfort. He's the God of all mercy and Father, Father of mercy is the God of all comfort. That he's producing comforting, a comforter in you to comfort other people. He's there at the point that you need him. And that in comforting other people, you produce endurance Improving character and hope. If you're going to approach difficult times, beloved, don't be surprised that you have them. Don't be surprised if you're walking in disobedience that the Lord brings chastening on you. That shouldn't surprise you. It just should affirm to you that you belong to him. What should be worrying you is if you're walking in open disobedience to the Lord and nothing is happening. See? That should be worrying to you and worrisome. So, I hope that it can round out a little bit of your, of your understanding about how, that suffer, how suffering works. I hope it's helpful to you. I think you know, Paul's experience coming through difficult times in the middle of difficult times, we're going to see much more about that in the next passages in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and following. We're going to see some very difficult times. And Paul's able to say this going through that. So that becomes the example of this marvelous life that's lived in a way that glorifies the Lord even in the midst of hardship. And that's really where we want to be you know, the Lord is not, um, he's a good, good father, isn't he? And as a good father, a one who chastens those he loves, he produces what he wants to produce, he produces what he needs to produce. And you know what? He has future glory set out for you as you suffer for Christ's sake, as you go through the difficult times as he molds your character. Listen, he, he's not wasting any of that. He doesn't want you to be a victim. He wants you to be a comforter in brokenness, bringing comfort to other people, encouraging people in hardship. That's the Lord's desire for us. Let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to, to seal these words in our own heart. We might become the kind of people he'd like us to be. Lord, we thank you today for a time in your word. We thank you for even the hard parts that we read out of 1 John 5 and, and out of Jeremiah. As we see your holiness and faithfulness there to yourself and to your name and to your word, which would even seem to be in, in the modern vernacular with the church and the modern age just to be so uninclusive and so narrow. Lord, you have paid the ultimate price of giving your son as a sacrifice for our sin. Putting the sin of the world on his shoulders and him bearing that sin to a cross and giving up his life. And because that sacrifice was sufficient, you raised him again that he might offer life to all who believe. That can be you today.
You can receive life if you believe. Confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. If that's your desire, do that right now, right where you sit. Confess that you're a sinner. You're sorry for your sin. It's called repentance. Ask the Lord to forgive you. And he will. Confess that he is who Jesus is, who he said he is. He came and did what he said he came to do. Accomplished all of that. And all his words about you are true. It's confessing him as Lord. You're under his authority. Confess that to him. I'm under your authority now, Lord. Whatever you want to do with me, you're free to do. I give up my life to find it. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Your, your security for your safety and your salvation is found in Christ conquering death. Death is the wages of sin, and Jesus took it for you. If you confess and believe, you can have that now. Lord, thank you for your work in each of our lives. Thank you for those who confess and believe today. Even when, you, when your word goes out, it's effective. We know that. Thank you for the work that you do in us, in us the difficult times you've brought us through. We can look back perhaps now with a new perspective and say, Lord, you know, um, you were at work there. You did these certain things. You produced these certain things. Or, Lord, I went through this, and I was just, it was all about me, and I was like, why are all these things against me? And, Lord, that was wrong. I'm not a victim. Wherever it is that uh, you are, the Lord meets you there. Put that understanding of work. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Lord, I pray that you'll apply it richly and liberally by your Holy Spirit in our life and make us more like your son. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.